Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. We praise the Lord Jesus together. We praise Him for saving us. We praise Him for that wonderful testimony from Tati. And Jesus will never fail us. Everything else will, but, but He won't. <clears throat> and so our pulpit prayer this morning is a prayer to the Spirit of Jesus, the very Spirit of God, uh, to help us as we open His Word. The Bible says that without God's help, you are a blockhead with a hard heart. That's not me insulting you. That's just biblical truth. That's what the Bible says that we are without God's help. And so I really am praying that God himself will help us as we open the Bible. So let's pray. God, our Father in Jesus Christ, our only Savior and living Spirit of God, we cry out to you for help now. You inspired this word that we will open. It's your gift to us. And without your present help, Spirit of God, the way you inspired this word supernaturally, we need you to illumine this word to our hearts. And we ask for this help because we have uh, ignorance, I suppose, innocent ignorance, just things that we're confused about, and so we need your instruction. But beyond innocent ignorance, we have hard-hearted stubbornness and strongholds that we have chosen to defend that dishonor you. And so we ask that you would break through those by your very power, the very living power of your word, we pray. Amen. Amen. Sermon this morning is a little bit different. It's not a straight teaching sermon. It's more of a response sermon. You can see that from the three-part outline in the bulletin. What I've done is I've taken the three most common, most plausible confusions about men and women, the three most common outright lies that the world believes and promotes, and I've tried to counter those with scriptural teaching. So we'll go back and forth between those two things. The other reason that this sermon is a little bit different is because I picked, I picked to read out loud uh, five or six, the five or six most like bad or odd sounding scriptures about men and women. I on purpose picked to read out loud the four or five or six places that when we read these out loud, everybody in the world today would just go, what's that? And I want to read them out loud and I want to read them out loud joyously and courageously by God's Spirit's help because this is God's good word. And so I want to sort of say the hard part up front. And I say this to help you because I, I want for you to be closer to God and further from the world's lies. I want that for you because I love you. I want you to be closer to God and further from the world's lies. And so I want to say to you up front, if we read these passages and they sound strange or wrong or bad, and they very well might, if we read these passages and they sound strange or wrong or bad, I want to urge you, be slow to call God's word strange or weird or bad. And be quick to question your own feelings about what is strange or wrong, or bad. I'm not saying that that rule, like 
clears everything up and makes everything easy. But I am saying, if you are a person who is quick to call God's word strange and wrong and bad, and you're slow to question yourself, I am saying that you will quickly become that, uh, that Wile E. Coyote cartoon where you're just pumping your arms and moving your legs, but you've already gone far off the cliff and there's nowhere to go. If the Bible sounds strange or wrong or bad, be open to this explanation. It's because there's more of the world in you than there is of the Bible in you. Be open at least to this explanation. It's because there's probably less of God's word and more of a worldly influence in you than you think there is. So be willing to receive this with an open heart. Our first text is 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole thing. 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Look at this. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel with modesty, and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I've got so many passages to read this morning that I'm not going to be able to explain each one of them verse by verse. I've dropped in the, in the notes, if you see my, my favorite or our favorite uh, like Christian organization that has really solid teaching on the differences between men and women, so you can look at those links. You can certainly contact me if you have more questions about this. Uh, second thing to say is we're actually in Genesis 3 right now, and so we, we see how this will relate to that later on in ABF. And the third thing to say is, why is it that preachers today, they say verses 4 and 5 of this chapter like really loud? God loves everyone. God wants everyone to be saved. And why is it that the same preachers just sort of mumble and stumble through verses 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. Beloved, this ought not to be. This is God's good and beautiful and true word. God's design for women is as excellent as God is. Do you realize that? All of the attributes of God stand behind everything that God designs and does. And so there's no way that God could design something that isn't as wise and gentle and gracious and merciful and, and perfect as he is. 
He designed men and women perfectly. He ordains their roles and responsibilities perfectly. He deals with their sin, as this passage indicates, perfectly. So I just want to say out loud that nobody is going to come up with a better or more equitable arrangement for men and women than God is. God's is perfect, and we follow it with joy. The reason men's and women's roles and understanding them is so important is because it starts in Genesis 1 and 2, and it literally continues to the last two chapters of the Bible where the marriage and, the, and our Christ is the masculine husband and the church is the feminine wife. It really does go from Genesis to Revelation. Now, to be clear on, on theological priority, men's and women's roles in the home and in the church isn't, how, how you'd want to say it, a, a cardinal primary gospel issue. The cardinal primary gospel issues are actually right there in verses 3 and 4 and 5. The nature of God, the person and work of Jesus Christ. But even if we say that, the roles of men and women in the home and in the church is most certainly a, a cardinal priority uh, doctrinal truth of Christian living because it is the most basic relationship the husband and the wife. Everything in the household keys off of that. So it certainly is a matter of first importance in Christian living. So to say that this isn't an area where we can have a difference of opinion and interpretation and really closely partner in making and training disciples in the church, it's too significant for that, I would, I would say. Speaking personally, this is why I couldn't partner with a church that has women elders. I couldn't do it. This is why, personally, I could never recommend you to go see a marriage counselor who didn't really believe what the Bible says about male headship in the home. I believe that would be harmful for you, not helpful for you. I wouldn't do it. And so I want to lay these things out clearly to help you uh, overcome the lies in the world that are plausible and popular. And I want to do that because I, I, want, I want you and I both to be as close to God's good, beautiful design as we can be. So the first lie countered with the truth is this. Is what the Bible says about men's and women's roles outdated and useless at best and harmful at worst? Or is what the Bible says about men's and women's roles God's good design for joy and flourishing in the home and in the church. The first place we read was 1 Timothy 2. If you turn past 1 Timothy, logically what would come next would be 2 Timothy. And then if you go past that, it's Titus. And that's the next text that we're going to read. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. 
Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. That's Titus 2 verses 1 through 8. So, why does the Bible indicate that the wife, the mom of the young kids, should be the one to stay home and raise those kids? Why does the Bible indicate that the husband, the father, should be the one that goes out of the home and works? Why does the Bible indicate in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 3 that men, males, should be elders in the church and that women should not be? Why, why does the Bible say that? Some people answer that question by saying, the Bible doesn't say that. And they twist an interpretation out of this that makes the text say what it doesn't say. I don't, I, we're not going to handle that this morning. A lot of other people, maybe some people here, maybe me in the past, uh, when we're asked that question, we, we say something like this. Uh, I don't know, but the Bible says it and we follow the Bible. That's not a totally bad answer because it, it, it's not a bad instinct because it expresses humility and it expresses a reverent faith in God and his word. But can't we do better than that? Can't we actually provide a holistic a- answer that shows how God's design is as good and as true and as beautiful as God is? If, if the hierarchical or authoritative relationships in the family and in the church are not arbitrary or random, but they're God's good design, then they would fit with how God designed the world. This, another tiny aside, this sermon is meant to follow the sermon from last week. I'm sorry if I'm cheating to say that, but if you missed the sermon last week, I would, I would ask you to listen to that sermon also because the, oh man, I never remember the outline. The outline was reality, relationships, and rules, and that God creates reality, and then the rules that God ordains, they fit perfectly and flourishingly and fruitfully with the reality that he created. And they show us how to, be, how to, be, how to prosper in those relationships. And this, this message is meant to follow that one. You see, what God says about the roles of men and women, they, it works uh, on a biological level. After all, the mom's the one that nurses the baby. she got to be there to do that. They work on a biological level. They work on a creational, designed level. They're not arbitrary. Why does God say that men should be the elders in the church and not women? Maybe a a pietistic answer that doesn't help much would, would be like this. Well, if God says it, we trust it. God could have said that no redheads should be elders in the church. Current redheads uh, accepted. I, I want all you redheads to be elders in the church personally. It's like, it's it just sort of like, well, God can, God can have whatever rule he wants. Well, I suppose God could have whatever rule he wants. But God's gracious to show us that by his design, his rules fit into our relational realities according to how we've been created and designed for different roles and responsibilities. So in the early chapters of Genesis, 
And I have so many strange New Testament chapters to read. I'm not even going to read through Genesis 1 and 2, but I'm allowed to do that because you've all been in there in ABF the last couple of weeks. But in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, it's very, very clear that, that Adam and Eve are created equally in the image of God, but they are created very differently for different roles and different responsibilities. The headship of the man is shown in that he is created first. The headship of the man is shown in that he is given the probationary command from God. And then it's his responsibility to, to teach that and transfer that to his wife. It's also the case that even though Eve is the one who took the fruit, it's Adam who's called out for it as responsible, both in Genesis 3, verse 19, and in Romans chapter 5 in the New Testament. So Genesis 1, 27 and 28, that says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. There's that equality of dignity that both the man and the woman are created in the image of God. And there's that difference. They have varying and different roles. And though there's an there is a glorious equality of how we're both designed in the image of God, we don't have an equal ability to carry out those designated roles. God designs the man for some and the woman for some others. What would that be? He says in Genesis 1.28, uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth and exercise dominion. What I'd like you to think about with me is in what ways is the woman just masterfully crafted for that first set? And in what ways is the masculine man just masterfully crafted by God for that second set? That first set being be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that second one being subdue it and exercise dominion. Now it takes both of them to do both of them. And there are ways that the man helps with the first and there are ways that the woman helps with the second. God designed them to be mutual and to work together. But there are definitely differing capacities. To state the, 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 the big and beautiful one, the woman has a womb. What about that? We don't think about that nearly enough. The fact that a woman has a womb is far more consequential than you think. My mama didn't have one. I wouldn't be preaching this mediocre sermon right now, right? The womb means that there's an asymmetry, not an identity and equality between the sexes. The womb is that from which every human being springs. Was, I think it was last week or the week before, we talked about the theology of the belly button, one of my favorite theologies. Beautiful theology there. Objection. Uh, I mean, you know, like, so if I'm saying that the, the, the women are, are, are more designed for that, that first half of those commands because they have the womb, and let's just say the male, the man, more designed for that subduing and dominion part because he has greater physical strength, testosterone, skeletal structure, shoulders, all the rest. Objection. Some women can't bear children. And objection. Some men aren't really strong and they could be beat up by some women who are in this room right now. I won't name who they are. At least I won't name the women. I'm fixing to name the men. No, I'm not, I'm not going to name either one. I'm not going to name either one. Either one. But it's like, 
I, I don't want to waste a lot of time on that because th- that's a long way from a gotcha. It's, it, this, we're, not, we're not talking about the particularity of every single individual on the entire planet in every circumstance that they're in. We're talking about pattern. We're talking about pattern. We're talking about creational design. Of course there's going to be a particular this or a particular that, but, but the, the God's master design and the pattern is very, very clear. It's a, it's a lot like saying human beings have two arms and two legs. And if, if your Uncle Albert had his leg amputated, I don't mean to imply that your Uncle Albert is not a human being by saying human beings have two arms and two legs. We're talking about the general creational pattern. I'm not meaning to insult your Uncle Albert. Just as I'm not in any way meaning to make a a woman who has never had kids or can't ever have kids feel bad. Uh, There's no reason for that. The Bible marvelously puts the the barren or the single in, in a special category of service to God. In Isaiah, in the Psalms, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, God has a design for you in all of your particularity. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But the Genesis pattern reflects that these realities are in the marriage relationship. And to, to say it as clearly as I can, the way Paul brings that pattern into the practice of the church means that God's designed differences don't stop at the front door of your house. They also have implications for the rest of life. Certainly, clearly spelled out, inspired implications for life in the church. When we start with what God says in his word, then we would answer, we would answer the question, this, this either-or question that we're starting with, with the second one. What God says about men's and women's roles is his good design for flourishing in the home and the church. If we don't start with God's design in his word, then we get wrapped up around the axle and we say, well, what God says is outdated at best or harmful at worst. So l- let me summarize what I'm saying in this way. Question. Uh, why can't a woman be an elder in the church? Question. Why does the Bible say that the woman should stay home with the babies? Let me answer that question with another question. Why can't a yellow canary be a green lizard? Why? The answer is because God designed the canary to glorify him with its fluffy yellow featheriness. And God designed the lizard to glorify him with its cold, scaly, green lizardness. And you, 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 you can only glorify God as who you are. And you can best glorify God as who you are and who he designed you to be. This is a good and beautiful thing. God's assignments are not arbitrary. It's not lost on me that I'm a man up here talking about women's roles to women. That doesn't disqualify me from talking about it, I don't think. But that's not lost on me. But I want to tell you from my heart to yours, God's assignments for you are not arbitrary. And God himself will never steal from you something that is for your good and his glory. So trust God's design and quit kicking against it to your own harm. 
You see, God glorifies himself in our design. And this, one of the reasons that I have to belabor this is uh, simply this. Every single, well, I don't want to exaggerate, almost every single Disney movie and almost every single Marvel movie, it's the girl that beats up the 300-pound robots all the time. And like the men never do it. That's like, the, the, I'm just saying that that's, when you go back to Genesis 1, 28, and then you look at the way the world makes everything so arbitrary and upside down, it's, it's common for us to have more of the world in our uh, unspoken assumptions about men and women than it is to have the word of God in there. And I want to I wanna rescue us from that. Second question is male headship, or you could say is masculinity or patriarchy or whatever you want to call it, is male headship, using the term from Ephesians 5, toxic? Or is male headship, using the term from Ephesians 5, or masculinity or patriarchy or whatever you want to call it, as God's good design and life-giving? And for here, we can read from uh, Colossians and Ephesians. If you're in Timothy, you got to go back to the left just a little bit, and it goes... uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Let's start in Colossians 3. Look at verse 12. Colossians 3, 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, verse 16, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then, what are wives to do in Jesus' name? And what are husbands to do in Jesus' name, giving thanks to God for what they do? Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And if you turn back just a couple of epistles to Ephesians 5, we won't read the whole thing, but it's, it's strikingly similar. He says, give thanks. He says in Ephesians 5.20, give thanks to God for everything. He says, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Give thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 22 of Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, himself the Savior. And then he calls the husbands in verse 25 to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We live in an age where these truths are uh, far from self-evident. We actually live in an age when these truths are almost immediately dismissed as harmful. The societal pressure against a a wonderful, God-honoring theology of husbands and wives is is at, at, uh, at seemingly record levels. A couple of uh, common responses that deserve a, an answer. First, people believe that the theology of male headship in the home is an oppressive ideology that promotes male superiority. 
The second complaint against our theology of male headship in the home, second complaint is that this teaching promotes or allows sexual abuse. To take a moment to answer both of those questions with an open Bible and hopefully an open heart. To the first, that this teaching uh, is oppressive because it, it promotes male superiority. We need to counter that teaching head on and point out that the Bible teaches that the woman and the man are equal in Christ and are equally created in the image of God, which directly contradicts some sort of superiority and inferiority and protects the, the, the woman from that. We're equally valuable, though we are designed for different roles. To the second issue that sometimes this has encouraged or allowed sexual abuse, we also have to give an honest and steadfast answer. I would say, I would say, uh, and I've got two things in my mind while I'm saying this, or in my gut while I'm saying this. I have sorrow and I have anger when I say that distortions of this biblical teaching have in some cases led to sexual abuse. And if that has, and where that has happened in the church, where some man took a twisted version of a misinterpretation of scripture and used it to fuel his own satanic sexual drive in abusing a woman who was made in the image of God, this is, this is utterly unacceptable and we stand against it. In a fallen world, post-Genesis 3, everything good can be used for bad. And authority, which is God's good gift, can be used in self-serving and harmful ways. And if any professing Christian man has been guilty of any of those things, he, needs to, he must be rebuked, he must repent of his sin and, 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 and completely change. All that said, what Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 say about headship, uh, I'm just saying the Apostle Paul didn't put that necessary today caveat in front of it. He just said we give thanks to God for this and it's really, really good. And so we do. And so we do. The answer to the misuse of these things is not to erase male headship or authority. The answer to the misuse of these things is to get our hands, our feet, our nose, our whole self into the Word of God because the Word of God contains the answers. Look at Ephesians 5. If you're open there, look at Ephesians 5 with me again and just look at verse 1 of Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Every man who's in authority in the church, every man, every husband who's in authority in the home is accountable to follow Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 in his use of that authority which is granted to him in verses 23 and following. You see, men who lead are to lead under the authority of God and they're accountable to God. In all of those ways, he talks very specifically about sexual immorality in verse 5. And in, in, in uh, verses 5 and 6, he says, don't cover it over, but expose it to the light. I'm telling you, the answers to these questions we have about dealing with sexual abuse are right here in this very passage. The Bible itself shows us the way forward and the way through. Men 
who lead, lead under the authority of God and are accountable to God to not use their authority in any way that is sinful or abusive. And women, or I should say wives, who submit to their husbands are likewise protected by God because he says submit to them as to the Lord. So the wife never submits to something that's sinful or against the will of God. From the Bible teaching itself, it's clear that masculinity as God designed it isn't toxic. But from the Bible itself, it is very clear that sin is toxic. Sin is always toxic. That's why he says in Colossians 3, husbands, don't be harsh with your wives. That's why he says in Ephesians 5, husbands, use your authoritative headship to die for your wives. Male headship in the home is not an evil to be erased. Rather, it is a good to be embraced. And there are, in particular, in, in a congregation like ours, there are men who have not embraced that. Your sin's not that you've gone too hard on the authority side. Your sin is that you've never picked up what God has given you. And you need to pick it up and lead the way that he's called you to lead. Stop abdicating your leadership. Stop settling for passivity just because that's the way all the dudes are in your world. It's not the way Christ-like men behave. Husbands and fathers make everyone in the household safe by demanding no safety for themselves. That's not a bad summary of what it says Jesus did. He, he bled and died. Third question, and then we'll be completed. Are men and women interchangeable? Or are men and women different and created to look and act in distinct ways? And this is where in the closing moments, we'll talk about whether or not women should wear pants. I'm glad you're laughing. Uh, two, two texts, uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 22, one verse there, and then 1 Corinthians 11. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Strong words. An abomination, not just to their neighbors, not just to their neighborhood, an abomination to the Lord their God. For what? For a man wearing that which pertains to a woman or a woman wearing that which pertains to a man. And lest we think, I, I don't have time to read it, but lest we think that is a merely Old Testament concept, the place to go is 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul doesn't quote from Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, but my opinion or my guess is he had tech, Old Testament texts like that in his mind when he explained what he explained in 1 Corinthians 11, where it says that men and women, uh, that the, the, the woman is the glory of the man, the man is the head of the woman, and the woman is to adorn herself in such a way that it shows she's the glory of the man, and the man's to adorn himself in such a way that he's, it shows that he's the head of the woman. And he, Paul actually says there, it, further down in 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about head coverings, which I'm not going to settle today pretty much, but he talks further down there about, he says, does not even nature itself show you that the long hair of a woman, and implicitly I think he's talking about the beard of the man, is like nature itself shows you that there, there's distinct differences between the physiology of the man and the woman. 
So what do we do with pants and stuff like that? Well, there are styles of dress, items of clothing that are distinctly masculine and distinctly feminine. Interestingly, the text of Scripture uh, never gives this long list like Converse shoes are okay, but high heels aren't. It never, it never like specifies exactly because that was an anachronism the very way that I said it. There, I think there's a good reason why the Bible doesn't lay that out so specifically is because the, the cultural trappings change from century to century, but the creational realities are the same from all of eternity. So... In the 13th century, a masculine Scottish man would put blue makeup on his face and wear a kilt. And everyone would know, that dude is a dude's dude. Like, no one was confused by that because that was the cultural trapping of it. I would would say today, uh, pants... Pants are, why am I preaching about pants? They're, they're neither masculine nor feminine. Everybody can wear pants, and you're not, you're not trying to make a claim that you're one thing or the other by wearing pants. The, the creational realities, though, the fact, the fact that it does change from century to century and from geographic location to geographic location does not put us into empty subjective category because there are always still creational realities that the apostle refers to in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, does not the natural order of things show you about the hair? So the exact shape of the gender differences between men and women will vary considerably from culture to culture, but the presence of a crisp gender distinction is necessary in the church, and I would say for, the, for worldly flourishing, necessary in the world as well. Creational reality as God designed it. So under today's thinking, uh, men and women are totally interchangeable. Under scriptural thinking, Deuteronomy 22.5, Deuteronomy 22.5 says that to think that men and women are totally interchangeable is an abomination to God. That's what it says. Men and women surely have the same ultimate purpose, the glory of God. Men and women surely have the same dignity created in the image of God. And men and women are surely utterly and completely different. And they're meant to look different. And they're meant to manifest those differences in uniquely God-honoring ways. So the roles that God designed for men and women are a blessing. Nobody can improve on them. Science can't. DC Comics can't. The movies can't. Uh, uh, Newfangled interpretations, making the Bible say something it doesn't really say can't. And why would we want to improve on that which is perfect and good and true and beautiful anyway? So I would just summarize it by saying that, that that same chapter we started with, 1 Timothy 2, about the uniquely designed roles for men and women in the church is in the, in the very same paragraph where he says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I would invite everyone here to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I would invite every man here to follow Jesus as a God 
ordained, God-created man. And I'd invite every woman here to follow Jesus as a God-designed, dignified woman. Let's pray. Our Lord God, as we began by asking you for help, we thank you for providing that help to us. We thank you for the clarity of your word. I thank you, Lord, for the, I, I praise you, Lord, for the Christ-like submission of this congregation, how, it, how it's apparent to me that they are eager to receive your word and to follow it. Would you bless and send your blessing on the preaching and following of your word? And would you, in your condescending mercy, continue to answer our questions, help us through our struggles, help us overcome our hurdles, that we might follow you, Lord Jesus, and know your great love. You are faithful to each and every one of us from beginning to end. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.